Okay, well, let's pray and ask for God's help. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank and praise you that he has done all that it takes to set us right with you. We praise you for his greatness. Pray, Heavenly Father, that as we think and reflect more on how wonderful he is, that we would fix our thoughts on him and never turn away from him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you think about it, Jesus is a pretty strange choice for a God. I mean, Allah, fair enough. He's an obvious choice. There's your, your classic God in the sky. Big, strong, he's transcendent, and visible and mysterious. Or, or even Buddha. Buddha, he's cool. Enlightened, man. Detached. But, but Jesus, he's just an ordinary bloke. A chippy carpenter. And what did he do? The high point of his career, dying as a criminal on a cross. I mean, if you've seen the movie The Passion, by the end of it, you just feel sorry for him. You don't want to worship him. Jesus is a bit of a strange choice for a God. An ordinary bloke, an ordinary bloke who dies. He seems weak. seems inadequate. That is certainly what most of the Jews thought at the time of Jesus. I mean, their religion, Judaism, that was a religion of power. A religion given on Mount Sinai. We saw it in Exodus with thunder and lightning, with, with smoke and fire and angels, with their heroes, the Jewish heroes. They were real men, real leaders. Moses, bringing his people to the promised land, getting his way, he'll kill you. David, who ruled the world of his day, getting his way, he'll kill you. The Jews, at the time of Jesus, they, they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Christ, a King. And they were thinking Schwarzenegger. Now, they were thinking Rambo. They were thinking power and victory. The idea that the Christ would die, that was just ridiculous. The idea that he would die on a cross, symbol of the curse of God hanging on a tree. That was totally unacceptable. The Messiah is blessed. A, a, a cursed Christ. It's like an oxymoron for a Jew. It's a contradiction in terms, like a, a tiny mammoth or a civil engineer or something like that. It's a contradiction in terms. Uh, uh, on your outline there, the Apostle Paul says, Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Bit of a strange God, crucified man. Jesus, uh, I think I've shown you before the very early piece of graffiti where it's got a picture of uh, Alex Amanos, a guy looking up to the cross and it says, Alex Amanos worships his God and you've got a bloke on a cross with an ass's head. They thought it was ridiculous. Ridiculous that you'd worship a man on a cross. Now, remember, uh, remember this book of Hebrews. It's written to some Jews, some Jews who had become Christians. They, they put their faith in Jesus. But you remember, times were tough for them. And they were being tempted to go back to Judaism. So to help them, what the author's done so far, he's talked about how great the Son of God is. He says that the Son of God, he made and he sustains the universe. The Son of God, he reveals God perfectly, the exact representation of his being, the radiance of his glory. He says, uh, the writer says, the Son of God, he is 
way superior to the angels. And his message, way superior to the angelic message. Now remember at the time, uh, the Jews, they thought of the Old Testament, the law, as being given to Moses by angels. They thought their, their religion was an angelic religion. Well, right up the Hebrew it says, Son of God greater than angels. He talked about how great the Son of God is. And so he's encouraged his readers, stick with the Son of God. Never, never drift away from him. But at this point, if you think about it, you can imagine an objection that Jews might come up with. Perhaps it's an objection that these Jewish Christians would have heard from, from family members. You can imagine a Jew saying, look, right of the Hebrews, all this stuff may be true about the Son of God. All this stuff may be true of the Christ, the King. But right of the Hebrews, aren't you talking about Jesus? That, that ordinary bloke, that, that man who died on a cross, he's not better than angels. I can't imagine an angel being weak like a man. They glow in the dark, these guys. I can't imagine an angel dying on a cross like a man. Right of the Hebrews, I don't believe you. I think angels are better than Jesus. Jesus is just a passing fad. What we really want is the message of the angels, the law of God. Imagine that, that kind of an objection happening. Well, I think that's the sort of objection that the author has in mind in this next section of Hebrews. Uh, in verse 5 of chapter 2, he picks up his argument about angels and he quotes from Psalm 8. Psalm 8, what it does, it talks about, um, it talks about how great man is talks about how God has subjected creation to man. In one sense, it talks about how minuscule man is at the beginning of, of Psalm 8, but this part of the psalm talks about how God has subjected creation to man. It says that man is, uh, in some way, lower than the angels, but yet God has made man ruler of everything. Angels aren't in charge of God's kingdom. Man is. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. Have a look with me. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. It's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, God's kingdom, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, and here's the quote from Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you cared for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. Rather than just remind us what that means, everything under his feet means everything under his feet. By implication, that must include angels. Halfway through verse 8. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. See what he's doing? God promised in Psalm 8 that he would make man king of everything. Now, of course, you look around and you don't see Psalm 8 fulfilled. Try to tell a great white shark what to do and it's clear. Go try to tame a saltwater crocodile. It's quite obvious. Uh, tell a storm, stop. It's pretty, pretty obvious. Creation is not now subject to mankind. Creation does not now do what we say. If you watch Super Nanny on TV, you'll see we can't even control our own kids, let alone the whole creation. Uh, the writer knows that. And he says it at the end of verse 8. He says, yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. We don't see everything under mankind. The writer knows that, that we're not now crowned with glory and honour as rulers of the universe, but the writer also knows something else. Something about one particular man. Something about the man, 
Jesus. This is the first time Jesus is mentioned by name in the book. The writer says, Jesus was made lower than the angels. He became a man. He suffered death. Death for us. But where's Jesus now? He's risen from the dead. He is crowned with glory and honour, just like in Psalm 8, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See what the author's saying? Psalm 8 is fulfilled in the man Jesus. Yes, Jesus did become a man. Yes, he did suffer death. Yes, for a little while he was made lower than the angels, but God was doing what he said he would do in Psalm 8. And now the man Jesus, he is king over everything, including angels. And so Jesus, that ordinary bloke, that bloke who died on the cross, he is in fact greater than angels. He is the ruler of the world. The author's not finished yet. In the rest of the chapter, what he does, he talks about talks about the great achievement of Jesus in becoming a man and dying. He talks about three great things that Jesus achieved, three things that angels could never do. Verse 10, he comes up with the first one. He says, he says it's appropriate that Jesus had to suffer on his way to being crowned with glory and honour. It's appropriate because it makes him like us. It makes him our family, our kin. Verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Perfect here, don't, don't get stressed about that. It's just a way of talking about Jesus being crowned with glory and honour. Why is it fitting? Why is it fitting that, uh, that Jesus should suffer? Read on. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. It's right that Jesus became a man and suffered. It means he's one of us. That makes him a fitting saviour. And he also then quotes from a couple of Old Testament saviours, people who suffered and who then were able to relate to the people around them as family. Now, first there's a quote from King David, then two quotes from Isaiah, both sufferers, suffering rescuers. So uh, near the end of verse 11, near the end of verse 11, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, like King David, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I'll sing your praises. And again, this time it's Isaiah. I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, reading on in Isaiah, here am I and the children God has given me. So Jesus is a man, a man who's suffered like David, like Isaiah. Now, like them, Jesus can call family. He's one of us. I wonder if you've seen the movie the Doctor. William Hurt plays the title role in this movie, The Doctor. He, he's the Doctor, Dr. Jack McKee. He's a surgeon who refuses to relate to his patients. Sort of doctor who's, uh, I'm sure, very unlike any doctors here, the sort of doctor who's offhand and, and glib and makes a point of not making eye contact, not empathising with his patient. Doesn't matter, what, doesn't matter what you're going through. With Dr. McKee, it's purely professional until Dr. McKee finds that he's got cancer of the vocal cord. And suddenly he realises what it's like from the other side. Dr. McKee finds out the hard way what it's like to be a patient. 
what it's like to be wheeled around on a hospital trolley, his former colleagues not even noticing him anymore, talking, the staff talking about him instead of to him. And he suddenly comes to realise what it feels like to spend hours in a waiting room at a clinic. He suddenly realises the forms you've got to fill in when you've just filled in another form almost exactly the same. He's, he's transformed by the experience of being a patient because, because now he knows what it's like. Transformed by the experience because now he knows what it's like. Interesting movie. And, and, and you think, as you watch it, when it comes to the crunch, I hope my doctor knows what it's like on the other side. I hope he knows what it's like. Jesus, can you see, is a fitting saviour because Jesus became a man, because Jesus suffered. Jesus knows what it's like. An angel could never do what Jesus has done. No way. Angels are not fitting saviours. They are not human like us. They don't know what it is to suffer like us. But Jesus is a fitting It's right that he should rescue us. It's fitting that God should make the author of our salvation perfect through suffering. It's fitting that Jesus should lead us to glory. Have you seen that? So here's the point. Here's the point. Jesus, his humanity, his death, it doesn't make him less than angels. No way. It makes him all the greater. All the greater. The author goes on to talk about two more things that Jesus achieved by becoming a man and dying. Verse 14, he talks about how Jesus defeated the devil. Ever since the time of Adam and Eve, the devil has he's had one over us. The devil has been able to accuse us. That's what his name means, the accuser. And he's been able to accuse us. He's been able to demand our death because as sinners we deserve it. But now Jesus has died in our place. He's tasted death for us, verse 9. He's saved us from judgment, verse 10. He's made us holy, verse 11. And so now the devil devil has got nothing. Nothing over us. Nothing to accuse us with. The devil is defeated and he's Destruction is sure. Verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That's the devil. He's defeated the devil and now I love this next bit. Now, now there is nothing to fear. We can be set free from our slavery to the fear of death. Verse 15. Destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. I just want to stop and think about this for a minute because I reckon this is brilliant. I know there are people out there who say they are not scared of death. I know some people think they're not enslaved by their fear of death. I reckon they're having themselves on. Peter Bolt's written a very, very interesting book on this uh, called Living with the Underworld. And he puts this very well. He says, says, everyone is afraid. They just do different things with it. Some run from death by simply not thinking about it. Some lie awake at night worrying about it. Some stave it off with all kinds of busy activities. Some try to cheat death by maximising their pleasure before death comes. Some turn and face death and dare it to take them. But everyone is afraid. Scratch down to the mortal flesh and you will find that deep anxiety 
that fear of the grave that unsettles us to our very core. Woody Allen put it well, I've I've quoted this many times, Woody Allen says, I'm not afraid of dying, I just don't want to be there when I die. Most of us try not to think about death, but meanwhile we live with a profound anxiety. Jesus talks about this. He says, he says, we scurry about worrying what to eat, what to drink, what to wear, worrying about life, worrying what other people think of us, worrying that we have no significance because death is looming there before us. Death is there making a mockery of everything we are and everything we do. It tells us we are nothing. It tells us we have nothing. In the face of death, we long for security. We long for significance, for something that's going to calm our fears And that makes us easy prey for the devil. The devil lies to us. The devil tells us that we can have security in the things of this world, in stuff, in pleasure. And in our desperate search for significance, our desperate search for security, we fall for the devil's lie. We give our lives over to futile things. We get enslaved by them, spending our whole lives trying to get stuff that we can't take with us, trying to get up in people's eyes when it doesn't matter. We spend our whole lives thinking these things will make us matter and it's just a lie. We've been tricked by the devil because of our fear. Friends, friends, do you understand what this verse here means in Hebrew? We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid that there is no significance and no security. We don't have to pretend that the things of this world can save us from death. We don't have to believe the devil's lie that we can find security and significance in this world and in these things. We don't have to be afraid because Jesus has died our death. On that cross, he bore our death penalty and now for us, death has no sting. Death for us will be entering into the presence of Jesus. Jesus is leading us to glory. Death is nothing to fear. There is security in Jesus. There is significance and meaning and hope in Jesus. And so we can be free from our slavery to the fear of death. But it could only happen because Jesus became sin we bled and died. It could only happen because Jesus became one of us and took what we deserve. An angel couldn't have done it. No angel could defeat the devil and free us from the terror of death. No angel could take his thing of accusation. Only Jesus could do it. Only the Jesus who became a man and died for us could do it. And so again, the point is this. The fact that Jesus became a man and died, it doesn't make him less than angels, not at all. It makes him all the greater. There's still one more great achievement. One more great achievement. One more thing. Jesus did by becoming a man and dying. By becoming a man and dying, Jesus was able to fulfill the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. He became the sort of high priest we need. He he offered the sort of sacrifice we need to pay for our sin. Jesus did all that it takes, not just to set us free from the devil, but to bring us into the presence of God. No matter who we are, no matter what we go through, he knows us, he can bring us to God. Verse 16. But surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God 
and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help us who are being tempted. It is a great achievement. Able to bring us to God. And again, it's an achievement no angel could have done. No angel can be our high priest. No angel has offered the sacrifice that God demands for our sin. No angel can purify us and bring us into the presence of God. They don't qualify. Not one of us. They haven't offered the sacrifice. Only Jesus could do it. And again, only because he became a man and died for us. So again, Jesus' humanity and his death, it doesn't make him less than the angels. No way. Jesus is way, way greater than angels. was made lower than angels. He did become a man. He did die. But in doing so, he achieved more than any angel or anything or anyone else could ever achieve, more than Buddha could ever achieve, more than Allah could ever achieve, more than anyone could ever achieve. Jesus knows us and he saves us from death and he brings us to the presence of God and he is now crowned with all glory and honour. Angels, they're fine. They're fine. Jesus is. So says the writer, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Think about him. Confess him. Stay with him. Chapter 3, verse 9. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, apostle and high priest. Jesus may, in some ways, seemed to be a bit of a strange choice of a God. He was a man, a real man, an ordinary man. He did die on the cross in weakness. But don't ever be deceived, will you? The fact that he became a man and died, that only adds to his greatness. The other day I was talking to a relative of mine about Jesus and he said something like this. He said, I don't mind the whole Jesus thing. Don't mind that you talk to me about it. Jesus, he seems like an okay sort of a bloke to me. What I don't get though is why I would need to bow and scrape to Jesus. I don't get why I should worship him. He just seems like an ordinary bloke. Well, I wish I'd read this chapter when I spoke to him. Because now I know that is all the more reason to worship Jesus. In fact, now I know that I would never worship any God who hadn't become a man and died for me because no other God could understand me. No other God has cared about me. No other God no other God could save me. John Stott puts this very well. I think I've quoted this before. He, he compares the God of Christianity with other religions and he says that without the cross, God could only ever be distant and unconcerned, like, like that doctor who'd never been a patient. Let me quote from John Stott. Because I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. Get that? I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God in the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. Legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look in his face, hatched from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I've had to turn away. 
And in imagination, I've turned instead to that that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from scenes, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. I've got to say, I'm with John Stott. Jesus is the God for me. Don't give me some distant, unconcerned God. Don't give me some Allah or Buddha up in the sky or anything else. Give me a God who knows me. Give me a God who's been there. Give me a God who cares, not with some distant platitudes. Give me a God who cares enough to enter our world of pain and to suffer with us and for us. There's the God we need. There's the God who can help us. And that's the God I will bow down to. That's the God I will give my life to. That's the God I will fix my thoughts on and, and I pray. Pray to God that that is the God that I will never, ever, ever change. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are not distant and immune to our suffering and our need. You have loved us and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ you have come to us and lived with us and died for us. Thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has suffered in every way just as we have and so knows us and can sympathise and empathise with us. And we thank and praise you that he has done all that it takes to defeat the devil and to bring us into your presence. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you help us to trust in Jesus and to stand firm trusting in Jesus and to never, ever drift away from him.